Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, Thursday, June the 20th, and that means that it's the last day of VBS. So if I look a little red, red-eyed and tired, it's, it's not because I do a lot of work during VBS. I'm just here all day and all evening. <laughs> but uh, there are a lot that are more tired than me. But uh, it's been a busy full week. It's been a great week. And, uh, of course, we called it the Kids' Summer Jam this year. Get used to that. That was kind of fun with a little Hawaiian theme, uh, kind of a surf-up theme. Kids are having a lot of fun with that. But this morning, we're going to jump back into the Gospel of John and finish chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, open it to chapter 17. We'll begin in verse 20 in just a little bit. This is the fifth part. Uh, We've taken Jesus' high priestly prayer, which encompasses all of chapter 17, and broken it into five parts. And today we will get to the last part. The first part was when we talked about the humble glory that Jesus exhibited. The second part was how he prayed for safety uh, for his followers. The third part was how he prayed for them to have unity in the face of opposition. And then the fourth, which was last week, we talked about Jesus' prayer for sanctification of his disciples and his followers. This morning we're going to be looking at Jesus' kind of wraps up this prayer with a plea for unity, a call for unity of all believers. And we'll see what what maybe Jesus meant by that and uh, ask the Lord to to kind of open our hearts and minds. So if you have your prayer card with you, then let's pray this morning. And that prayer does exactly that. It just asks for the Lord to illumine our hearts and minds so that what we study this morning will truly make a difference in our lives. So let's let's pray before we begin the study of Scripture. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies. And unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, thank you. Let's look at the, let's look at the scripture here, starting with verse 20. I'm going to read through 26, which ends the chapter. I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may become perfectly one. And so that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, even as thou hast loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, may be with me where I am, to behold my glory, which thou hast given me in thy love for me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known thee, but I have known thee, and these know that thou hast sent me. I made known to them thy name, and I will make it known that the love with which thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. And with those words, Jesus brings to close the prayer of his ministry, the prayer, the kind of the culminating prayer of, of uh, everything that he has done. I'm, I'm convinced that Jesus prayed this prayer uh, like he prayed all prayers, not just for the sake of the prayer of his petitions to the Father, but because he's teaching us. From that sense, I call them didactic prayers. He's, he's teaching us, he's modeling for us the idea of prayer and what, how to ask and what to ask. And this is the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus. Don't know that it is the longest. He, of course, he prayed for hours and hours and hours. But in, in the setting of Scripture, this is the longest prayer that we have. And he's bringing it all to a close with this plea for unity. This fervent prayer for unity. We hear the word one a lot in this passage this morning. That they may be one as we are one. And we, while we've talked a little about that, we hear Jesus just bring it together over and over. It, you know, as we look at, starting from the very uh, second verse we read this morning, that they may all be one, it says, even as we are one and that they may all be in us. I think we need to make a note here of, of something that's very important in, in verse 21. Jesus doesn't just ask for us to be one as they are one, but he even says that they may also be in us. This is a fascinating phrase, that they may be in us. You see, this... If I teach you nothing else from the study of John, with time we finish this book, if I teach you, if I've taught you anything, I hope I've taught you this. It is the privilege of every human being to become a part of the divine life of God. And that is John's gospel. John's gospel calls us to a deep, theological, mystical participation in the divine life of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He continually brings to us visions of the Trinity when he says words like us, and when he says that as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. But let's begin with this thought um, in the very first verse, verse 20. He, he just says it plainly. I'm not just praying for these, Father, but I'm praying for all. All those who, he says, will believe or who believe in me through their word. Now, this particular prayer, I've got a lot of words circled and underlined in my passages here that I'm working from. And, and the first one that I've kind of put, I put little quotations of, around because I want to talk to you about it, is this word believe. Okay, this word believe. I do not pray for these only, but for all those who believe. 
just what does it mean to believe? That's a challenging word in our English language. Okay, But I put some new words on the board, and this little word right here, pistu, pistu. That's a Greek word, pistu. And that's the word used here in the scripture. Now, in Greek, that word means, does anybody know? It means faith. It means faith. And so what we're connecting is the thought in English of believing with faith. But the deepness of that word for faith, it, 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 it talks about something that is abiding and lasting. It must be something you believe with your head. It has to be something you believe with the very actions of your life. How do you prove you have faith? This gets back to the old adage of faith, where uh, the mantra of the Protestant Reformation, saved by grace through faith, the Protestant Reformation championed the words faith alone because they were trying to make a point. And that point was that we don't earn our salvation. The problem with making that point was the words faith alone are not in the Bible anywhere. Okay, The only place that they are used is that uh, in the book of James where he uses faith in a faith alone in a, in a negative connotation when he says that we must show our faith with works. You show me your works and I'll show you your faith, James says. So what are we to make of that? I think we're to make the same thing that Jesus is saying here. When, when they heard him, they knew that it was not enough for them to just believe. They had to live out that belief. They were going to go on to live out their faith. And that's our question to us today. Do we just believe or do we live out our belief? Lots of people say they believe in God. Not nearly as many live out their life as if they believe in God. And that's very important for us to do. Those are, that living out of the faith, those are the good works that Paul says in Ephesians, God prepared before the foundation of the world for us to live in, to do, and to work. And in a sense, Jesus is praying for that. But so, so he uses this word, peace do, for faith. I'm praying for all those who will have faith in me through their word. Now, I also circle the word there. It's a pronoun, personal pronoun, there. He's talking about particular people through their word. Sometimes I think we look at this and, and we, we miss something that I think is rather profound here. Jesus did not say, Father, I pray for all those who will believe in me through their word and the words of all those who will follow after them. Jesus didn't say that, did he? So is it my words here this morning that are really important for you to believe, to, to bring you to faith in Jesus? Because I'm one of those who followed after him. Jesus is definitely praying for me. He's praying for you. He's praying for everyone, he says, who will also believe. But believe through their word. Who's there? That's why I circled the word there. Who is there? T-H-E-I-R. Who's he talking about? Who's, absolutely. He's talking about the 11 apostles that are with him in that room now that Judas has left. Through their word. Through the apostolic word. It is, and I think this is important, the apostolic witness. These are the ones that were filled on the, the day of Pentecost. 
And of course, the Holy Spirit filled over the many that day. But it was their witness that began the work of the church, the new spirit-filled church in the world. It is their witness that began organizing churches. It is their witness that began calling ministers. It is their witness that began ordaining ministers. It is their witness that began planning churches. It's an apostolic movement. And and so my question to you this morning is, do we recognize that the witness of the apostles is still alive and well today? Do we recognize are people coming to belief because of my words in this study or because of the apostles' words in this study? John, one of the apostles who wrote this scripture. Well, I would like to tell you, I believe that people, if anyone comes to faith through this Bible study, maybe listening on the podcast uh, through the years, it's not through my ministry. It's through the apostolic ministry because I'm proclaiming the words of the apostles. You follow me? I'm proclaiming the words of Christ, the words of the apostles who proclaimed the words of Christ. Okay, So I don't want to take any credit here. I want to give John all the credit. This is why we pray in our, it's written into the creeds that we pray, I believe or we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. The church is from the apostles. Paul tells us in the book of of, uh, Ephesians, The church is built on the foundation, which is the apostles. There is an apostolic. Christ is the cornerstone. But let us not forget the apostolic witness. So all preaching, we model the apostles. We should model the apostles. All teaching, we should model the apostles. We We should understand that we're living in their, we're living out our lives in their witness to the modern world. And that changes the way we look at things. It should change the way we do things. It should change the way we look at things. It would certainly should change the way we take credit for things. Hopefully we don't take credit for things. It's just, it's not me. I'm just a mouthpiece here, willing to be used as a mouthpiece for Christ to speak the same things that his apostles first spoke. And I think that's why it's so important that... Scripture not be the, the scripture not be added to or taken away from it, it says in the book of Revelation. At, at the end of the book, you know, it says we don't add anything or take anything away from these words. This is a very important witness. This this is the holy words of God. It is the holy witness of God. Certainly, as John's going to tell us at the end of this gospel, there are other things that Jesus said and did, but the world couldn't contain them all if we tried to write them down. But there's enough here for us to believe in this apostolic witness that we call Holy Scripture. Now, so there's, there's another, there's another uh, thought for you. There, it's their word. It's the word of the apostles that's going to go forward from the day of Pentecost. That they may all be one. Okay, now here he's saying they, but he also said in the very first line, not just them or they, but all who will ever believe. So let us not, let's let's make sure we get it. Jesus is praying for us. It is the prayer of Jesus that you and me, or I, never know which is, I'm I'm terrible at that. That's one of my worst English things is, is it you and I or you and me and when is it, but either or whatever. But you know what I mean. The 
Jesus is praying for you and he's praying for me just as much as he was praying for them that we would what? I'll be one. I'll be one. And now he's going to emphasize that thought of being one over and over and over. And in verse uh, 21, he gives us the reason. Why is it so important that we be of one mind, of one heart, of one spirit? You know, you can hear the Apostle Paul writing here again. We, we always hear his words. He has such an important impact in Scripture. We hear him talking. You've been called to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. That's in Ephesians also. Why is this oneness so important that Jesus is going to stress it over and over again here? Why is that unity so important? He tells us the answer. The answer I want from you to, that I want you to see. It's in that very verse. Look at verse 21. See if you can pull it out for me. What is the reason why unity is so important? I'm sorry. It's in the... It's not in verse 21, sorry. It's in verse uh, 23. I'm sorry, 23, I, I mistake there. I and them and thou and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them. What's the reason for this oneness? What, is it, what does he say? So that the world may know. How in the world is the world going to know? If we're not one, think about that for just a minute. How important is unity in the body of Christ? It's ultimately important. It was ultimately important from the beginning. Jesus says that the world may know. The world, every person who will ever be born, that they may know. They see the oneness. And when they see unity in the body of Christ, you see God. Because remember, God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no division in the Godhead. The Father doesn't argue with the Son. Doesn't argue, the Son doesn't argue with the Father about what to do. And the Holy Spirit doesn't say, I don't want to go do that. They're perfectly one. And he even uses that word perfect. Let's, let's kind of learn another important word here in verse 23 that they may become perfectly one. Some of your versions might say that they may be perfected. What is your say? Completely. That they may be completely one. Anybody say anything different there? See, the idea here, the word, the word here is, uh, is this word, the bottom one I wrote down, teleu. This teleu in the Greek means finished. Perfectly done, complete, Absolutely nothing lacking. That's what that word means. So when Jesus says in his prayer that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know. I'm going I'm to throw something out here this morning. This is, this, is, uh, this is challenging, okay? But I think it needs to be said in our time. It needs to be said in our day. We need to hear it. I'll, we can't really do a whole lot about it, but it was God's intent. It was, I believe it was God's intent, and I believe Scripture witnesses, that it was God's intent for there just to be one church. Okay? From the beginning, one church. 
In the Old Testament, there was one Israel. There weren't two Israels. That was the church. It was God's chosen body of people. Okay. In the New Testament, Pentecost comes. The God's body of people are transformed. The gospel is out there. The Jewish people are starting to convert. They're trying to help them see the truth of the gospel. It eventually spills over into the Gentile world because we want so that the world may know. But there was not from the beginning more than one church. It was so important that there be one church that when people started teaching a different gospel or thinking theologically a little out of bounds from what the apostles had taught, Quickly, church officials, church bishops, church ministers would say, wait a second, that doesn't, that's not right. And that's not what Jesus taught us. And so they, they even got to the point where we've talked about they would have whole worldwide councils. I mean, after just a couple of hundred years into Christianity, there's a big worldwide council in the year 325. You know, the last apostle, John, dies in about the year 100, somewhere around the, the end of the first century, beginning of the second. That's when John dies. He's the last, longest living apostle. We believe he died by old age. Don't know for sure, but we think so. That's what tradition tells us. And, and then you're launching into a new century. So you, now you're in the, you know, the, the uh, second century. And the very first church leaders, they were trained by John and some of them by Peter before he died and some of them by Paul before he died. And, and these are the apostolic witnesses succeeding in teaching the apostolic teachings. And it becomes, so you're just 200 years out from that. By the time you get to 325, you're just 200 years from the turn of that first century. And, and, and they're already having troubles with people teaching who Jesus is. Some of them teaching that Jesus wasn't really one with God. He was the created being that was a son of God. I mean, it's wild stuff. Jesus never taught that. Scripture doesn't teach that. And, and so they had to get together and they said, no, 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 no. Why? Because it was only one church. From the beginning, we see even in Acts chapter 15, the very first council ever is held in Acts chapter 15. It's called the Council of Jerusalem. They started calling in the apostles and the presbyters, it says, from all over, and they had to deal with this issue. What was the issue? The issue was, do Jews have to become, I mean, do Christian, Gentile Christian converts need to become Jews first? Because everything started with Judaism. So they had to deal with that. And they dealt with it as a church. They prayed about it, and it tells us the whole story in Acts chapter 15. It's a wonderful story. Don't have time to go into it right now. But they come to a decision, and they come to that decision in unity. And they, James even says, uh, the, the leading, the chairman of the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the first bishop of Jerusalem, James, the brother of the Lord, says, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Here's our decision. And it was binding. And that's how the Christian church formed after that. So what do we do with this thought that today you and I are born into a world where there are literally thousands of different Christians? Thousands of different types of Christians, let me call it that way. All with a little different slant, a little different idea of what's right from wrong, a little different idea of how to worship, a little, little different idea. But what do we do with that? How do we witness to a world the oneness that Jesus is praying for in this chapter. This is one of the most significant lines of scripture that we need to wrestle with and understand. 
how do we do it? Because I got to tell you, I think there's an awful lot of people in our world today that look at Christianity and they say, wow, that's a jumbled up mess. You, you've got Baptists and Methodists and Protestants of all persuasions, and, and, and none of them agree with each other about almost anything. And when they disagree, they just join and they just start another group. I mean, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. That was never God's plan. So the question is, what do we do with that plan? And is God trying to do something in our world to bring us back into oneness? I think there is, this is hard to see. Okay, this is hard to see. When we just see one little tiny glimpse of history in the world, the the part we're living. But looking backward across the Protestant Reformation, 500 years now of the Protestant Reformation, well, we know that even before that, if we go back a thousand years, okay, in a thousand years, a thousand years into Christianity was the, really the first breaking apart. Then that's when the East split from the West. You've heard me talk about Eastern Christians, Orthodoxy, you know, Orthodox Christianity, versus Western Christians or Roman Catholic, you know, Catholic Catholicism. That, that was where that developed. Even a th- It took a thousand years, but after a thousand years, the church began to split, and they've never been together since. Now, they believe a lot of the same things. Not everything's the same between the East and West, but there's a lot of commonality. And, and so then you got another 500 years, and an even bigger split from just the Western side. Okay, that's the Protestant. We come out of the Western side, and there's this huge split in the 16th century, and now we're living in the 21st century, and it just keeps going. It just keeps multiplying. We're multiplying like rabbits. I mean, there is. If you count non-denominational groups as independent churches, do you know how many roughly, nobody can count them all, do you know how many roughly different groups there would be? Upwards of 30,000. Wow. All with a little distinctive difference. Okay, now denominationally, if we can kind of try and narrow it down to denominations, it, it's even a little hard to do that when you have ten different kind or so that say they're Methodist, and you know, ten different kind that say they're Lutheran and things. But if you try and narrow it down to denominations, we come up with somewhere maybe around twenty-five hundred, a little upwards of two thousand. Okay, sounds a lot better than thirty thousand, but still, none of it sounds good when you know that God's desire is further to be one. So I think one of the things we have to learn to wrestle with is you know, there, there is no, none of this caught God by surprise, okay? God's not surprised that we all broke apart. In fact, I think it makes us want to go back and read that prayer even more. Jesus, why did he pray that prayer? Because he knew what was going to happen. He knew the temptations that would come. He knew that the the, the the worldliness that would come and that the church would, uh, leaders, certain leaders would fall and there would be splits. None of this caught God by surprise. But it still doesn't mean we have to excuse it. And I'm going to tell you this morning that I believe there is a way that we can all be one. Okay? I really do. I believe there's a way that we can all be one. And it's not the answer that that Rome would give, okay? That the Bishop of Rome, the Pope of Rome, he would say, well, y'all just come back and acknowledge that we're, that he's in charge and everybody can be Catholic and it will all be one again. But that doesn't solve the problem, okay? 
because even the East and West disagreed with that. The first thousand years, it was not a universal understanding that the Bishop of Rome was in charge of everything worldwide. That, that was something that developed over centuries. Political intrigue had a lot to do with it. So, what is the answer? It's not for us all to say, okay, Catholics were right, we're all going back. What's the answer? Here's what I think it is. It's for us to repent of our sin in being fractioned, or factioned, I'm not sure which is even the best word there, they both work, in the body of Christ, and to, in our hearts, worship God as one. What does that mean? That means that insofar as in me lies, by the power of God, I'm going to love everyone. I'm going to love and accept every Catholic as my sister and brother in Christ. I'm going to love and accept every Orthodox as my brother and sister in Christ. I'm going to love and accept every Baptist as my brother and sister in Christ, even though there are a few things we disagree on. But if we can love them, and we can lock our, arm, lock our, our arms together and present the gospel, the saving grace of Jesus Christ in a unified love, that's going to tear down huge strongholds. People are going to say, wow. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, we're living in a time where that's starting to happen. I won't know it till I get to heaven because it's not gonna, I'm not going to probably see it in my lifetime. But let me tell you, it's starting to happen. How do I know that? Okay, let me use some real hard examples here. 30 years ago, just 30 years ago, in this very church, we're a denomination, we're the Church of the Nazarene, we have distinctives about us, we, we love our faith and our, our teachings um, but we loved it so much that 30 years ago, we couldn't get somebody who wasn't Nazarene to even come in and do a special or give them an offering or whatever because they weren't Nazarene, because we were a little too proud of our distinctives and our differences. And trust me, I know, because as a minister in the church, at one point when I first came here, I lined up a singing group that came in that was not, they were a compassionate ministry that traveled around the world and they came in and and uh, we lined them up and they came in and they had their concert and they did this and we took a love offering for them and I was reprimanded at the end of that service. In love, <laughs> in love, I was reprimanded and told, you know, they're not Nazarene. We really don't do that. Now, I'll never, I'll go to my grave. I won't tell you who said that. I'll go to my grave and not tell you that because I wouldn't want to talk bad about it. I love that person, but but I was. But that, may it never be. We must be one. That's the prayer of Jesus. We must be one. You know, we do all agree with the basic tenets of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which is a little more full, fuller creed, I believe, fuller teaching creed. We, we have that commonality. So let the secondary distinctives be secondary. And let's love each other. And let's build the kingdom together. And you know what? If that really happens, and I see it happening more and more, I, I meet with, I meet with groups of Christians, I meet with ecumenical groups, I meet with pastoral groups, and and I've formed actually, I've I've been a part of forming ecumenical prayer groups where Catholics and Protestants 
Baptists, Methodists, non-denominations have all sat in a circle right here in this very building and prayed together. And we did the same thing downtown at the Catholic Cathedral. Well, that wasn't going to happen 30 years ago. That wasn't going to happen 50 years ago or 200 years ago. God is moving in our hearts to call us to repentance and to oneness. And, and I think there's a challenging message there. I'm, I'm just throwing it out there. I know it may be a little difficult for some of you to hear, but I'm throwing it out there. Uh, because Jesus says that they may be perfectly one. There's no room for error if you're perfectly one, is there? What are you thinking? You're all looking at me with at least like, Ooh, I don't know about this. <laughs> am, I, am I stepping out on a limb too far? Is, is this challenging you in any way? Say that. Expound on that. What do you mean, even locally? In this particular church. In this particular very building. Yeah. yeah. This very congregation, I should say. One. Yeah. And we're not always one. Yeah. And I think of Dr. Boyer's sermon. I think it was last Sunday when he talked about changes. And changes are going to come. And are we one enough? Are yeah. we going to be okay with that? Yeah. That's the unity I'm looking for. Amen. And I think this is speaking not just mm. way back to them, but I think today, like you said, mm-hmm. right here in our midst. That's right. It's a good example. When things change, I'm not saying that every change is okay if it's unbiblical. Okay. I'm not going to allow, uh, I mean, that's called heresy. And that's what they had the councils to fight against, things that were truly unbiblical. Okay, But when change comes that is uh, more secondary, like style, I mean, hey, we all have different styles we like. We're all different people. But can we find a oneness and a unity in the midst of change? That's, that's always a challenge. And the history of the... Movement has said, no, (laughs) we don't. That's why we just take our ball and go play somewhere else, start something different. Um, And and it's possible. Let me me say this. It is possible for a change to come to a congregation that is relatively so drastic, not bad, but just drastic, okay, that it's possible that not everyone that's always been there is going to feel comfortable with that and they're going to go somewhere else. That's possible, even in unity, if they go with the blessing knowing that they're not leaving because they're mad or vengeful or hateful or spiteful, but they're leaving because they just need to go embrace something that feeds them differently. And that's okay if this if, if if the Holy Spirit's really moving this congregation to do that, then then God has a congregation for them somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? That's a difficult that's that's a an attitude that takes love on both sides. So it's a challenging thing to leave the church in any age. Yes, see a hand. Does it make any difference? I mean, I don't think that God is going to be at the door and say, you Catholic or you Protestant? Not at all. So, no, It's not going to make any difference when we all get to heaven. And there's going to be people that were... News flash for you, okay? 
There will be people in heaven, I believe, who were not even part of any Christian church. Okay? Might have even been Muslims. Why can I say that? How can I say that? Because they're going to be judged. I could say Muslim, I could say Hindu, I could say anything. They're going to be judged by the light that God has given them, that they have been allowed to be born into and come across and walk through providentially. And they're going to be judged based on that light, not the light we think we're showing them. You see? Because there might have been an imperfection in us that caused them to not see it as God's light. They saw it as the light we wanted them to have. God's Spirit is active in the whole world, calling all to repentance. Okay? But we don't know what that repentance looks like. If they are living, trying to live good and decent and loving. I mean, I know some people. I know know a person who is Muslim, uh, who is as good a person as I know, a loving, self-life-giving person, self-sacrificing person. And believes in God and to his best of his ability tries to worship the God that he knows. And I'm telling you, I believe that man will be in heaven. If he's not, I I do not want to worship a God that would say, get away from me, I don't know you. Because you didn't look like Brad. I don't want to worship that God. That's a mean God. Okay. So, But but does he believe in Jesus Christ? Not the way we understand Jesus Christ. No, he doesn't. Not the way we understand Jesus Christ. That's our job. Our job is to live in such a way that he sees who Jesus is. But Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the creator of the world. So he comes, if he ends up in heaven, okay, and I can't say whether he will or not, but if he ends up in heaven, he's going to get there through Jesus. How can I say that? He gets there through Jesus because he didn't realize he was embracing Jesus, but he is because Jesus is God. You can't embrace God without embracing Jesus. See, we set up these boundaries that we want to make people look like us, exactly like us, and to pray this exact prayer. But that's not the boundary. The boundary is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And God will judge the inside of everyone's heart. God will judge the intention of everyone's heart when that day comes. Everyone who goes to heaven will get there through Jesus. They may not know it was Jesus the same Jesus that we were looking at. The same Jesus the way we looked at same Jesus. But it's Jesus, because there's only one God. There's only one way. Now, so why do we evangelize? Why then do we evangelize if that's possible for that person to get to heaven? You say, well, Brad, if that's possible, and just, let's just go out and tell everybody to be good, why do we evangelize? Well, two reasons that I can think of. Number one, they got a lot better chance of getting there by worshiping the Christ we know, the risen Lord, okay, and accepting him. They got a lot better chance of getting it. But you and I aren't even considered a lock for that because, hey, just because we believe in Jesus and we're worshiping him doesn't mean we're saved either. We've got to persevere in this life. We've got to persevere and we need to pray. We've been saved, we are being saved, and hopefully we will be saved. That's our theology. Our theology isn't once saved, always saved. Oh, we made the decision, we're in, okay? So in that sense, you know, we want to evangelize because it is, the, it is the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we want him to know him. Because to know Christ and to know this unity that Jesus is talking about when he asks us to be perfectly one with God, that's the highest form of life there is. 
the highest form of life, the highest form of love, is to be able to love your neighbor the way Jesus loves them. So the life of Christ, the, the very life Jesus, the teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, all the things that we study in Scripture, that's the most beautiful way of life possible. And we want to share that with the world. And we want to share that. That's where salvation is found. But we don't want to be judge, jury, and executioner of who gets in and who doesn't. So that's why I say it may surprise us. And when we get to heaven, no, God's not going to say, well, you weren't Catholic, you weren't Nazarene, you weren't whatever. He's going to be. Well, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. What does Jesus say? He says, did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you visit the sick? Did you do these things? He's going to separate everybody, it says, the sheep and the goats, left and the right. And he's going to say, did you do this? Did you do this? And some people are going to say, well, when did we do that? We didn't even know we did that. He's going to say, ah, yes, you did it. You did it because you did it to the least. You did it to the suffering. And you didn't worry about whether they were Christian or Buddhist or whatever. You just did it because they were humans and they were suffering. They're my children. And enter into the joy of your master. So if we go back and just read Matthew 26, that beautiful passage that Jesus, we, we hear him talking about, about this very thought, who gets in and who doesn't. So as, so, so I, I just want to make it really clear. I love the Church of the Nazarene. I really do. I love what we believe and the way we believe it. But I want to live it as a life filled with the love of Christ that others might see and come to know, I don't want to live it as I'm right and you're wrong. Okay, best of my knowledge. It's, it's, I know this is challenging stuff. It really is. But I do believe there's hope for our world. I believe we're moving that direction. I believe Jesus will come one day again. Just as the scripture says, as the creed says, Jesus will come again. And I think his coming will be precipitated by our oneness coming together as many as can, not by our continuing to go further and further apart. So I see hope in the world because I see Christians laying down some of their distinctive differences and becoming more one in heart. And that gives me hope. I think that's beautiful. Um, so we've, we've looked at the, the first few verses. And now let's look at verse 24. Because we're going to hear Jesus' real heart here. Jesus says here, Father, I desire. Well, if you have a desire, what, is, what does that word desire mean? Does it mean the same thing as I want? And I'm talking English now, just desire and want. Uh, I, I, I want a cup of coffee. Just feel like a cup of coffee. Okay. But I desire for my family to make it to heaven so that I can live with them for all of eternity. That's a whole different level of want than just wanting a cup of coffee, okay? Or just wanting a new car or whatever. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, may be with me where I am. Which is where? Where's he, when he says where I am, what does he mean? He means in glory, okay? Where he's about to be in again. To behold my glory. And that word there is the Greek word doxa. 
doxa, which means glory, it means praise, it means honor, it means glory, it means the right and only way. The right way to worship our God. Doxa. That's where we get the word doxology, to sing of his praise. I want them to behold my glory and thou hast give, that thou hast given me in thy love. You gave it to me before the foundation of the world. Oh, wow. Here again, Jesus is teaching. He's always existed. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus existed. Father gave him that glory and that love before the foundation even existed. It's Trinitarian, you see. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been there since before this world was ever formed. It's all through the scripture if you open our eyes to see it. And But I want you to see that desire. Jesus desires. This is why the Apostle Paul later writes things like, for me to die just to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is why Jesus in, in, in Luke chapter 16 talks about this story of the, 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 the beggar and the rich man and the beggar dies and goes to what Jesus calls Abraham's bosom or paradise is the word, paradisio. Okay? And, and the, the other one goes to Hades, a place of torment, it says, in that particular passage. So, you see, always it had been from the beginning of the world when people, because of sin, people were separated from God. When people died, they went to the realm of the dead. Their souls went to Hades. But no more. Not since the cross. Not since the resurrection. Not since the ascension. Jesus says, my desire is for my them, my, my loved ones, to be with me in my glory in heaven. That's why we believe as Christians that when we die, if we die in faith, believing in Christ, we go to be with him in glory. We don't just wait in Hades somewhere like they did for out ever. That's why in the book of Hebrews we see in that he talks about all those saints that died in the past. The Old Testament people like Abraham and Moses and, and you know, Jacob and David and all of them. Read Hebrews chapter 10. You know, and he says, but ultimately he comes to the fullness of the passage in chapter 11 and 12, where he talks about, you know, now we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses because everybody's, the host of captives have been freed. Abraham's bosom is paradise. It's heaven where we want to be. Jesus wants us to be with him there. That's a beautiful teaching, beautiful right here in this scripture. Father, I desire for them to be with me in my glory that you gave me, in the love that you gave me before the foundation of the world. And then he prays in verse 25, Oh, righteous Father. Hear how he's, he goes from Father to Oh, righteous Father. There's passion in Jesus' prayer. Don't miss the passion in his prayer. Oh, holy Father. Oh, righteous Father. The world has not known me, but these have known me. <laughs> he makes a point to say to, to the Father, they know me, and they know that you sent me. And I will make it known to them the love which you have loved me with, that it may be in them and I in them. Just take those closing words right there. I made known to them my name. I made known to them your name. I'll just try and translate it here. And I will make it known that the love which you loved me, the love with which you loved me, this Jesus talking to the Father, the same love with which you loved me, he's saying, may be in them. That's who's the them? Remember, that's you and me. 
He's praying for everyone that would ever believe. So how great is the Father's love? The love with which he loves each one of us in this room. The love of God. It's the same love that he loved Jesus with before all eternity. Wow. That's amazing. We're not some, we're not just lesser beings, you know, because we're we're not his just created toys down here. He loves us. We carry his image. He made us in his image to be in perfect communion with him. By our own freedom of the will, we we in humanity stepped away from that from that union because of sin. But be, thanks be to God, through the glory of the cross of Christ and his conquering death, we can now be with him again in that perfect love. You ever think about that? that God's, the love God has for you is the exact same love he has for Jesus. Sometimes as humans, sadly, in our sinfulness, humans sometimes love their children differently. That's a very sad reality. Very sad reality. When you see that happen in a family, somebody loves one child better or stronger or differently or more than the other. That's a sad reality, and it causes great harm in, in lives. But God doesn't, it's not supposed to be that way. The same love God had for Jesus is the same love that he has for us. And we're to live in that love. He even uses that way, it's that I may be in them. So it's not... It's not me and my power or you and your power able to love each other. It's Christ in us. Christ in us. So now we've come full circle to the thought that we opened with. This prayer for unity of the church and even of the individual believer is that we be unified in the same love that God had for Jesus from the beginning of the world. And that we not just be unified in the thoughts of our minds, but we are unified in our very being because Jesus Christ now lives in us, he says, and I in them. It's a very mystical thought. It's a very mystical thought, but that's a, I believe with all my heart that's what he means. And I think that's what Paul goes on to say when Paul says, for the life that I live no longer I that live it, but Christ who lives in me. For Paul says, I died to myself, but I'm alive to Christ and Christ lives in me. That's all Galatians chapter 2. I'm paraphrasing, of course. So what do we do with this beautiful prayer? Read it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Let it let it be for you a guide in prayer for love and unity of all Christians, for the sanctification of your own self as well as, as we talked about last week, and Jesus sanctified himself. He didn't need to, but he was doing it for our sake so that we would notice to present ourselves for sanctification in the Spirit of God. Um, it, it's, it's a strong and beautiful passage um, that the world may know all of it is for one purpose, that the world may know. That's actually the title of a book. I just love the book, That the World May Know. Uh, I've talked about it before. It's a, it's a very it's a sacramental book. I mean, it's written by an Orthodox priest who's passed away now. It's a sacramental. It talks about um, 
talks about life in Christ in a very mystical way, but that's something we need to open our eyes to. Well, we're going to move into the next week. We're going to move into the, the narrative changes. John leaves this prayer of Jesus, and we see in chapter 18, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth. I, I like how Mark says it. I think it's Mark's gospel. It says, Jesus says, arise, let us be going. He said all he can do. He said all he can say. He's done all he can do. He said all he can say. Now it's time to go. And he goes out into the garden where he's arrested. And the whole passion narrative begins from John's gospel. So next week, chapter 18, we begin that marching to the cross. And that, that we've, everything we've done up to this point has been building us to that reality. So we see the love with which he has died for us. We're about to. Any thoughts, questions, last comments? Uh, there's kind of some heavy, deep stuff here this morning about the nature of the church and, and the nature of how we're to be called in love and unity. Any thoughts, questions, comments, complaints? You don't have to believe it because I say it. Pray about it. Think about it. Look at the Word of God. Don't believe it because I say it, because it's not me. I'm trying to lift up the apostolic witness here. I don't want to lift up my witness. Just like the opening line, through their words. Well, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, it is, it is for the sake of your holy word, the life of Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the saints together with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in heaven. It is for that that we are to live our lives and have our very beings moving in the power of your Holy Spirit. So open our hearts and minds through this study this morning. Just open our hearts and minds to the reality of what the world could look like if we would all be one. At least one in our hearts, one in love. Call us to that kind of special love. Convict us when we do not exhibit that kind of love. Help us in our weakness. And we will give you all the praise, all the glory. We lift this up in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, as one God forever and ever and unto ages of ages. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.